Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Um, I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, um, the place where people go to crowdfund the books they really want to read. I'm Andy Miller, the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And who will we joined by today, Andy? We've got a special guest, very special guest for this episode. Well, it's me. Is that who you mean? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm allowing Nikki agency by, by waiting for, for waiting for her to say. Oh, giving me the space. Thank you. Right, I am the um, editor of Backlisted. Sometimes get to come and say hi and talk about books, usually with one line. What is my line that I always say, Andy? It is the only question that really matters. What is the book about? (laughs) What is the book about? The book about. That's all I ever say. That's not true, listeners. That's not true. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes we answer, Nikki. And she's happy with the answer. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just leave it to the cloud. We just sort of figure it out as we're going along. Um, Nikki has joined us on previous episodes of Batlisted, as regular listeners will be aware. And you can hear every week on Locklisted, which is the podcast that we make for supporters of our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash Batlisted. Nikki, why don't you tell people why we're doing this episode and the way we're doing it today? Well, it's quite exciting because I've been working on this podcast, I think, for about five years, but you guys have been working on it for about eight years. We have. um, And we are rapidly (sighs) approaching our 200th (laughs) episode. And, uh, and, And so we thought we'd actually use this time to just kind of kick back a little bit before we hit the big two zero zero. And, uh, and, 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 and show (laughs) the big 200. Yeah. Um, the bicentenary and show our audiences really um, who don't subscribe to Locklisted. That's the Patreon um, edition that you can hear every fortnight. Plug, plug, plug. Uh, really sort of show you um, a little bit of uh, what you might hear if you did. And also let's let's um, say that because it's all about, John, isn't it? The attention to detail in uh, <laughs> it's all about the attention to detail. We, we're plugging. I'm famous. We, I'm famous for detail. We're not Andy. just mis- we're not just plugging. Um, patreon.com forward slash backlisted <laughs> we're also plugging a gap in our schedule which is that uh we we've got our our much celebrated annual halloween jamboree we're like it's like strictly this show uh, we've got our annual halloween episode coming up uh, but we always like it, it to to 
arrive on Halloween itself like a trick or a treat. So that means on this occasion, that episode will be available for everybody to hear on Halloween itself, October the 31st. But that meant it would have been a three-week wait until uh, since the last episode. Too so long. Too, too long. long for our loyal audience. This is like yeah. a, a mini a mini episode. A mini-sode. A mini-sode. Oh, dear. Anyway, <laughs> just keep listening, please. We're each going to talk about a book that we have really uh, enjoyed uh, in the last week or month, or in my case, this year. Apologies to lot-listed listeners who will have heard me talk about this novel already, but... Um, I love it so much. I just wanted to have another opportunity to talk about it in a different way and read a different part aloud. So I'll just ask you that, Andy. So let's uh, let's kick off. Andy, uh, this is a question that will be familiar to all listeners of Backlisted, um, but we now do it on Lotlisted, as we've said before. What have you been reading this month? Indeed, this week or even this year? Tell us, what's the book you want to talk about? I want to talk about Scott McClanahan's novel, The Sarah Book, which is new-ish. It was published, it was first published in 2017. And uh, before I talk about the actual book, I'd want to just say something about how I found this book. Um, I went to a concert by a singer-songwriter called Christian Lee Hudson. Uh, it was excellent. His stuff is available to listen to on Spotify. Um, and his most recent album, uh, Quitters, I didn't own a physical copy of, but as is traditional now, I'm at the gig, I thought, well, I'll go to the merch table and I'll buy a copy of his album, Quitters. And on my way home, I opened up the record and I was reading the sleeve notes. And in the sleeve notes, uh, Christian Lee Hudson dedicates the record to the influence of a book called The Sarah Book by Scott McClanahan. Now, those of us of a certain age, this is how I used to find books when I was a teenager. Not on record sleeves necessarily, but interviews with bands in the NME or, or, or wherever. And in a sense, that was the book talk of its day. <laughs> Teenagers reading what musicians recommended. So I thought, well, okay, you know, why not pursue this, this tip? I love the record and I love that songwriter's view of his characters in his songs and how they seem to relate to his own life. The book's got to be worth a look. Anyway, I ordered a copy from the States. It's not in print in the UK, and indeed never has been in print in the UK. Published in the States by Tyrant Books. And when it arrived, I read it pretty much straight through in one go. And I am happy to report that the Sarah book by Scott McClanahan is the best uh, novel I've read since I read Gwendolyn Riley's My Phantoms a couple of years ago. High praise. <laughs> that is high praise which listeners to this podcast and a good read on Radio 4 will be all too aware is my favourite book of the last few years my favourite novel of the last few years anyway so the Sarah book to me matches up to that it's the story of a relationship it's a love story and a hate story and um, I think the hate is probably self-hate um, and the love is a uh, uh, a man's love for his wife, Sarah. Indeed, that man may well be Scott McClanahan. You know, this would technically, speak, technically speaking fall into the, the category of autofiction. Um, uh, it's also the story of how two lives 
come together, are shared for a while, and fall apart when their marriage falls apart. It's very sad. It's, um, to me, extremely funny. And um, ultimately, it's very beautiful. Um, it has a very, very short opening page. This is what the, how the opening page runs. There is only one thing I know about life. If you live long enough, you start losing things. Things get stolen from you. First, you lose your youth, and then your parents, and then you lose your friends, and finally, you end up losing yourself. Blimey. Now, if that sounds like your sort of thing, this is the sort of thing for you. Yep. It is it, beautiful, funny, epigrammatic. Um, now, I talked about this book, didn't I, guys, on Lotlisted. We have a very yeah, um, enthusiastic vocal community on the Patreon message boards. How have people been responding to, uh, to this novel after I talked about it on there? Well, we did see that the author did become himself a patron, so that that's probably a quite a positive statement. <laughs> hi, hi, Scott. <laughs> but yeah, which is great. Really and thank you, and thank you very much, Scott, if you're listening. There's a flurry of ordering that went on. That's for sure. People trying to find copies of the book and um, downloading it. People, some people were a little, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, the, the passage that you read. I think was quite a shock to, to, to some people, but they they're all good. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's a great <laughs> community. It's a, it's a good a good readers, you know. They yeah, want they want to read more and find out more. It's difficult to use the word bleak about fiction without making it sound unappealing. But what you've done, I think, the way you've described this novel to me, and I I'm one of the people who's who's got it on order, hasn't arrived yet. As always with with great fiction, it's the language, isn't it? It's the precision that he, he that he manages to kind of dissect his own feelings from the bits that you that you've read and the complexity that he manages with the incredible economy of language. The other thing that's always in my head is that you said he has a, and I've gone online and checked that you're out exactly right, that he has a very hokey accent. Which state is it that he's from? West Virginia. West Virginia, that's it. Kind of working class mining country. So all of these things make me think he's unlikely to make the horrible journey that J.D. Vance has made. <laughs> You know, from writing a, a memoir about his hillbilly relatives to becoming a kind of an avatar of of, of the, uh, the increasingly far right. So uh, it's a bit like I'm thinking about the book that I'm going to talk about in a bit, the Anna Funda wifedom. It's a sort of per there's so much personal in here. The border between personal and and literature. Where does that lie? Yeah, yeah. In this one. Well, you know, this is this is for me this book sums up one of the dilemmas we have to deal with on this podcast all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is it, it, are the characters likable? Is it relatable? No, the characters aren't terribly likable, therefore it is relatable. I, I always think this, this the, you know, how do you feel about yourself is always the question. A book is the question it comes down to. A book reads you, we know that. And... Mm. Um, I had a re I was having a really interesting discussion with um, one of our patrons this morning, in fact, hello, Valerie, about whether this novel, or as far as I'm concerned, any novel is bleak. I tend not to see the bleakness in things. You know, I tend to respond to truth 
truth expressed well. And that seems to me perversely life-affirming, as she says, even if the truth being expressed can be difficult to take. Mm. That's the stuff I find funny as well. I, I find, um, as you said, John, the, the mm. content is not important so much as the expression of it. Yeah. And the expression of it is so light, so careful, so on point that it almost becomes funny through both an acknowledgement, through recognition, but also execution. With your permission, I'm going to read a different bit because the bit that I read on Lot Listed was Great. pretty full on. This is a little le less full on. <laughs> this is from a chapter. I'm going to read three short extracts from a chapter quite early in the novel where Scott McClanahan gives you a, a, a biographical run-through of Sarah's family and background. But who was she? Her name was Sarah Johnson and she was born in 1976 in West Virginia. She was the daughter of Alfonso and Corrie. She had a brother named Jack, who I never liked, but who I always said I liked. I never liked him, and I'm not putting him in my book. <laughs> but if I really wanted to tell you about Sarah, I would probably tell you about her first memory. Sarah was four years old, and she was taking a shower with her aunt Sherry. Sarah was so short, she only came up to Sherry's waist. They had come back from swimming at the beach, and Sarah had sand in her little girl hair, and sand in the folds of her little girl's skin, and sand around the edges of her little girl bathing suit. And Sarah was young enough not to be ashamed of taking a shower with her aunt Sherry. Sherry slipped off Sarah's bathing suit, and Sherry took off her own bikini as well, and the two of them stood naked together beneath the falling water of the showerhead. Sherry scrubbed Sarah down with a washcloth, and then lathered up Sarah's hair and rinsed it free of sand. They switched places and Sarah stood and watched her aunt Sherry wash. Then Sarah saw something dangling between her aunt Sherry's legs. It was a white string. Sherry lent her head back and rinsed her hair clean and Sarah felt only one impulse now. She wanted to pull the white string dangling from between her aunt's legs. She found herself repeating, I want to pull the white string. I want to pull the white string. So Sherry looked down and laughed at the little girl Sarah because Sarah had no idea that this was a tampon string. After the shower, Aunt Sherry told Sarah about the future, and her Aunt Sherry told her that some of us only bleed on the inside, but women are so alive that they can bleed on the outside too and make life like gods. So Sarah smiled and said she couldn't wait to be a god. But then one day she realised just how stupid this was and how her Aunt Sherry was full of shit. <laughs> this was a torture. And so after the shower, Sarah went and sat with her father, who she loved more than anything in the world. His name was Alfonso. One morning years later, he woke up after visiting Sarah. Sarah was a grown woman now. And on the last day of his visit, Alfonso started gathering up all of his stuff in the guest bedroom and was getting ready to leave. A few nights before, he got up in the middle of the night and ate some tiny containers of ice cream Sarah kept in the freezer. The next morning, he told Sarah she needed to throw out the ice cream in the freezer because it had freezer burn. Sarah told him, no, it doesn't, Dad. You ate the ice cream I keep for the dogs. Frosty paws. He didn't think about this now or how Sarah always laughed at him. He shaved and shat and packed his bags and finally showered after spending seven days with his daughter. Then he left. Later that afternoon, Sarah went into the guest room to strip down the sheets off of her dad's bed and wash them. She pulled off the bedspread and the pillowcases and then tossed the pillowcases on the floor. 
Then she pulled down the rest of the sheets and something fell out. What the heck? It was a giant chunk of cheddar cheese with denture marks around the edges. So Sarah picked up her phone (laughs) and called her dad. Dad, were you sleeping with a giant chunk of cheese in your bed last night? Alfonso said, hell yeah. I was wondering where that chunk of cheese went. Okay, so this little these little vignettes. A lot of random things. I just want to get the end. Love it. This is the end of this chapter. I think I said this before. The love that underpins this book is not the point of the book, but just when you think things can't get any bleaker. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they get warmed through at the same time. And here's one of those moments now. When Sarah was 16, she got a job working in the candy shop at the mall. One afternoon, there was a little boy with his mother, and they were walking towards Sarah's candy store counter. The mother of the boy was short and mom fat, and she did the talking for the boy, who was skinny and had big teeth and glasses. Sarah watched as the boy stared at her. He was carrying a bag from the bookstore, and inside the bag, a book that started, Whether I Shall Turn Out to Be the Hero of My Own Life, or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. The little boy looked nervous, and Sarah didn't know this yet, but the little boy was always nervous. He thought about dying sometimes, and he thought about going away. The mother of the boy asked him what he wanted. He whispered to his mother what he wanted. He wanted candy raspberries and a medium blue raspberry slushy. The mother of the boy ordered them. Candy raspberries candy blackberries. A medium blue raspberry slushy. So Sarah got the order for them and the mother paid and the boy and his mother walked away and Sarah didn't think about it ever again. Nothing stood out. She forgot about it, just like we forget everything in the world. But the little boy grew up and wrote this book. Lovely. So great. It's a really strong voice, isn't it? And this, it's difficult to see on segments but i i get a little bit of um the confederacy of dunces flavor from it yeah john kennedy too let's hope with a happier ending uh, <laughs> there's a salangery quality to it too so there's quotes on the cover from roxanne gay from Imagine. willie Vlorton, who who i suppose yeah, yeah. you could compare with uh, from maria semple and from carl tarot greenfelt who says mclanahan is an appalachian charles bukowski but he's better than that everybody <laughs> he's better than that so um the sarah book by scott mclanahan is available uh, as an ebook or a, a print book from tyrant books in the state still not available in the uk hopefully someone will hear this and change uh, change that nikki what have you been reading this week well, I have been reading, I've slightly taken the um, Bring Your Best book all, the whole of this year. I've kind of ignored that um, because I, <laughs> well, I bought a book which I'm interested okay. in off the back of our last episode. So I mm. think that's, you know, so it, well, it does I have a link. Well, say better than that. Yeah, exactly. So Was it the book we discussed on the last episode? wasn't the actual book we discussed ah. on the last episode. <laughs> which well, is, uh, nearly. <laughs> a close. victory on points. That, yeah. That's fine. I mean, that would have been a, a, a good, but it would have been a little bit re- repetitious of the last it episode. Would. So that was The True History of the First Mrs. Meredith by Diane Johnson. That was a biography that did lots of um, ingenious 
work with the form. Wow. Is it is it a biography though? <laughs> anyway, yeah, anyway, go go back to the last episode. <laughs> I think we concluded that it was. I think we concluded. Um, albeit, all right. Albeit a kind of uh, a very uh, 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 one that took certain risks and, and audacious um, risks with the form, which we liked. And that and that book was published fifty years ago, um, yeah. early nineteen seventies. Fifty years ago. So, Nikki, what have you yeah. been? So, I've then? I've been reading um, Wifedom, which is by Anna Funder, and it's something that Rachel mentioned in comparison with the Mrs. Meredith book, and this is published in two thousand twenty three. So Anna Funder, for those of you who don't know, uh, she wrote Stasiland, best-selling Stasiland in 2004. And this book, Wifedom, is, I, I say it's pretty successful. It's, it's out, you know, it's in hardback, so it's out in the shops now. But I think it's published it's probably, a few months ago. Right, it? It's doing pretty well, I'd suggest. Yeah. And this is a biography, she says, in quote marks, of Eileen O'Shaughnessy, who was married to George Orwell. And it's... In the same way, I think that Mrs. Meredith uh, or Diane Johnson was approaching um, how do we give light to wife of famous person yeah. in this case. And this is what uh, Anna Funder is doing here. One of the things that Rachel talks about so brilliantly is that there are quite a lot of moments in this book where Anna um, extrapolates or imagines what might have happened or imagines conversations that ha may have happened. So that not only are there sections where Anna is actually talking of her own experience, why she went about creating, writing this book, what interested her in George Orwell, what, what interested her in Eileen O'Shaughnessy. Then there's the more factual biography based on letters that have been un uncovered that are so sort of primary sources, letters between Eileen O'Shaughnessy and uh, a friend, Nora. And mm. then there's a kind of, Imagine that conversation that they might have had between her and George Orwell. It might have played out like this. So it's yeah. kind of three different sort of approaches all the way along. So one is fictionalized, one is kind of historical sources, and one is autobiography. Yeah, there's autobiography in there as well, isn't there? It's a reflection on her own yeah. life as a writer, the, the, the bargains she has or hasn't struck with her partner and her children. Mm. Exactly. And, and I just thought it was very interesting. Um, as well, I suppose the fundamental thing that she's trying to do is, and I believe this isn't original, there's been other books about Eileen Orwell um, written already, but is about kind of reassessing her, her position and trying to sort of say that all the biographies that are written about George Orwell never talk about her, you know, refer to her as the wife. He has tons of affairs all the way through. How must she have felt? How much she contributed. She was the main kind of breadwinner a lot of the time. She went out to Spain. She was never mentioned. And, you know, nobody ever seems to care about her. That's the kind of headline figure of it all. Yeah. yeah. As with Diane Johnson and uh, the first Mrs. Meredith, as discussed on the last episode of That List, is there's also a, an attempt to not just reclaim her as a person, but to demonstrate how... Um, patriarchal systems work their yeah. way into the very writing of books so you know all there have been six biographers to date of George Orwell all of the men and therefore perhaps there's a shared way of looking at the world which therefore marginalizes Eileen's life and her contribution 
Is that right, Nikki? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. One question I had, Nikki, because it's we published a, a biography by Sylvia Top really? of Eileen called Eileen, um, which I mean got 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 reasonable reviews, and it's a very much an old-fashioned biography trying to reclaim um, Eileen's reputation from obscurity. I haven't read Wifedom, so I just wondered whether Anna Funder made any kind of acknowledgement of that. Yeah. It, it did get quite a lot of coverage, as you would imagine. Yeah, she as, does as reference Andy says, it. There have been, yeah, so it's, 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 it's an interesting, it sounds like to me like she's trying to find an, a way of releasing uh, the, the energy without making stuff up. Which well, is, I think uh, that's the thing. I think she does make stuff up and that's like she must do because you can't ever, it's so interesting. If you can have a kind of uh, a biography and then you have these imagine, imagine how it was when George Orwell was seeking permission to go and have affairs. What conversation might he have been having? Of course, you have to make this up. This is done in a novel. It's 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 fiction, and and but yet because it's presented. And Anna Thunder is a novelist as well. Yeah, we should remember, yeah, yeah, right. And yeah. and I suppose that's what's so interesting about it. First, you have to kind of as a reader, you're kind of going, which bit are we in now? Okay, we're working out is this and is this fiction? And actually, if you listen to the audio book which I did, I listened to, uh, I both listened to it and read it. And it's mm. easier in the audio, but because they have different people playing different so roles. So do does, does it work, yeah. Nikki? Does, did, it, did it work for you, that, that combination? Because it really, really worked for us. That, 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 that one of the great things about the first Mrs. Meredith is that we all felt um, that the risks that she takes by putting herself into the, into the brain of Mary Allen in that book and, 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 and other characters as well to explain the emotional interactions of what happened but she did that with great um with great care but also it kind of emotionally you you went with it i just wondered is that the same for wifedom i think it does work i think it does work because it, it's a good story let's be honest right yeah. and you followed if you know george orwell's books then you kind of those moments when he wrote those books are familiar to you you know when he went yeah. out to spain and then he you know and and so those are very interesting even if you've just read 1984 you'll be interested in this book like it's kind of got enough connection to his writing I think it does labor a point a little bit there's a quite a lot of was George gay was he a womanizer did he let her down that is a very important that's the crux of this book but it goes on and on and on about it a lot it sort of shows her as in relation to him all the time in relation to him yeah yeah if you read the reviews of this book it to me it's fascinating it's what it's what a book should do no two reviews yeah. agree about yeah. the book fascinating the extent to which yeah, it really can good. be interpreted in different ways so whatever anna funder um wanted to achieve she's she's creating a series of different effects in her readers right um there's a review by olivia lang um that concludes by saying this is a fascinating book it's deserves to the story deserves to be told in a different way but we've been having this conversation for the last 50 or 60 years yeah and she doesn't name the first mrs meredith but that the genre of the uh, overshadowed wife is a perennially popular form of biography, mm. which 
some feminists find difficult because it actually removes agency mm. from, from, in this case, Eileen. It doesn't ask the question, perhaps this is the life Eileen chose for herself. Right? Let's hear some of it, please. Okay, so I've actually chosen a piece that probably doesn't explain or, or doesn't best set up uh, some of the things we've been talking about. But I would just add to it that it's very readable yeah. and very a really enjoyable book to read. So whatever you think about it in relation to it's kind of what it's trying to say, I, I, I would just, this sort of shows you how, how thoughtful it is and what a great read it is. So this is in the voice of Anna Funder. This is in her autobiographical section. And this chimes with lots of things we talk about a lot on Backlisted and Locklisted. Mm. Signing cues. She's talking about book signing books. Signing cues are a chasm of intimacy. People, not at all unreasonably, would like you to be the person they think you are from your work. You can see in their kind, open faces that these total strangers already know you as the person they've intuited on the basis of the book. In the intimate, imaginative fusing that is reading, they will have brought a lot of themselves to her so the you they want you to be is a hybrid, an amalgamum of you both. Writers pull from themselves things they know and things they don't and put them out there for the world to see. At a book signing, you're being asked to be worthy of the work you've written by matching yourself to a reader's imagined version of you, as if you're a key meant to fit into a lock-shaped space in someone else's mind. If it fits, you'll be the guarantee that authenticates the work, and if it doesn't, I mean if I don't, what then? These anxieties of authenticity exist because when the words go inside a reader, they make magic. They fizz and pop and conjure. They change minds. Your words may cast a spell on the reader, but they cannot be felt to be a con artist trick. But then the reader will feel defrauded. All the reader wants is for the avatar sitting behind the table to match their inner picture. It's not much to ask, surely. And there they are, standing shyly, patiently, expectantly in line, book in hand, sticky note marking the spot to sign the deal. But on the page, as Virginia Woolf put it, I is only a convenient term for somebody who has no real being. That written I is flexibly, creatively capacious, outrageous, furious. She evades gender expectation. She owes no one anything. She is not managing the household list. She is not worried she'll hurt her husband or offend her friends or neglect or shame her children. She is not, in Woolf's words, harassed and distracted with hates and grievances, legitimate and important as those might be. That inner eye is both known and unknown to a writer. She may be similar to the one psychoanalyst tries to recover, remembered or created on the page or in a consulting room. Like the force behind crop circles or the tides, the self leaves traces of other phenomena, our dreams, our writing, our children, but remains out of sight. None of us is who we think we are. None of us may be decent. Etc. Etc. I... I find mm. this fascinating because mm. that so dovetails with a book that we've been talking about on Locklisted, which is Naomi Klein's new book, Doppelganger. Yeah, the idea that you really send a, dab- a double of yourself out into the world to fit with expectations that people will have of you. That's one of the one of the the subjects of that book. And how interesting to hear it reflected in in that. I have a with your permission, can I just read you very br- a very brief extract, which also fits with this. It's almost like we, we rehearsed this, <laughs> which we, I assure you we didn't. Definitely didn't. There was a review in the summer of several books about Orwell by the American writer Rebecca Solnit, who has herself written about George Orwell. She 
wrote a book that was published a couple of years ago called Orwell's Roses. And I just wanted to share this with the two of you because it's a thing we we consider on Backlisted all the time, that that gap between the person who, who stays at home and produces the work that creates magic that Anna Thunder was just talking about and the human being behind the desk at the end of the signing queue um, <laughs> and their flaws. Our, our regular guest, Andrew Mayle, said many years ago we ought to call backlisted not backlisted but they're poor agents exclamation mark because of uh, how appallingly <laughs> behaved many of our subjects were in their in their private lives anyway here we go this is the beginning of rebecca solnit's essay about george orwell including wifedom by anna thunder this is how it starts the feminist writer moira donegan recently mocked contemporary social media reflexes in a tweet about oedipus wow I'm following now. I was a fan of his work solving the riddle of the Sphinx. Did not know he killed his father and married his mother. <laughs> Solnit goes on. We are in an age of moralists. The standard question has become whether someone was virtuous rather than whether they were interesting or useful or exhilarating. Some of this seems valuable for forming societies that are more inclusive and less abusive. Some of it is reductive and beside the point. Being a moralist, is a particularly fun and easy pursuit when it comes to the past, because pretty much everyone from the past comes up short when measured by present-day standards. Virtually no one in 1973, let alone 1923, had 2023 values about race, gender, sexuality and the rest any more than they had search engines or Twitter accounts. It's not our individual virtue, but our collective receipt of humane and egalitarian ideas worked out in recent decades that gives us our presumably splendid present-day beliefs. All this begets the question no one seems to ask. If in 50 years we are all tried by 2073 standards, won't we ourselves be found wanting? We will certainly be judged for what we're failing to do about the climate, which we know perfectly well requires far more than most are giving it. There are real questions too, about whether someone has to be a good person to be a good artist, since the tendency is to evaluate the former in place of the latter. People can have noble ideals in their art that they have trouble living up to, and if that makes them hypocrites, most of us fail by that standard. But I'd still rather have the art. On the other hand, there are artists whose moral ugliness is manifested in their art, clever and well-crafted though it may be. Another question is, what, if we are going to make moral inquiries, might constitute a fair standard for people of the past? Martin Luther King Jr. was not a feminist. And while Virginia Woolf was, cited just there by Anna Thunder, Virginia Woolf doesn't score particularly well on, among other things, class and snobbery, which is why there's a book about her fraught relationship with her servants. Um, and I think that's the I think that's, that's the question we always have yeah, yeah. to be asking ourselves when we talk about these books or make these shows or consider the values of these people. It's clear that that some are beyond the pale. But all well, it seems to me, one of the the reason there is still an Orwell industry, John, is he is endlessly reinterpretable. Yeah. Um 
both in his life and his work. And his work. I mean, it, it is the, the kind of the, the bad guy, you know, as Martin Amos would, would, would call it, you know, was he, a bad, was he a bad guy? I mean, it's, it, my, it's really difficult not having read Wife to Obviously, I have read Eileen, and, um, and I think Sylvia Top makes a, a valiant attempt to, um, to, to rescue Eileen from obscurity. And, and one of the points I think it was Olivia Lang made is, is that she doesn't really need people to, to, to make apologies for her behavior. You know, she, she made, as you, I think you said, she made, she made choices. She was a very witty, capable woman. And, you know, the fact that her relationship with Orwell didn't work, you know, it's, it's difficult to know, you know, she didn't live long enough to, to for, for us to to be able to to be able to judge what she might have done had she not had she had she lived longer and had she not had the relationship with Orwell. One of the criticisms of of the Sylvia Todd biography is that in the end you're just really fascinated about Orwell. You're kind of more interested in Orwell than you are in in, in Eileen, despite all the all that. And I wonder whether that was the same for the Anna in the Anna Funder book. I I think that Eileen is definitely the hero of the book um yeah. and and george is or eric is the is the kind of villain villain yeah you're reading it and you've bought into that and, and not just it, it's her as an emblem and yes i think andy you said this before that story may have been told in mrs meredith but that doesn't mean that it's not a valuable story to hear Absolutely. again and again and again yeah. and i and i think it, it particularly of a time around kind taylor's of, oldest taylor's time. oldest time creative people behind them you know it, it is another person doing a lot of the work and the heavy lifting that probably still exists now let's be honest and you know many places and many many people um i she does come across as somebody very interesting very clever very smart um and making some you know making some kind of important um decisions and important kind of key developments in his work right in terms of editing his work just does leave me wanting to read his work more so i don't know if that's the intended outcome but it does make me want to go back and read them with this perspective on it and go, oh, okay, that's interesting. Because when he talks about being shot in Spain, what he doesn't talk about is that Eileen was on the front line and went to him. And, you know, so you want to sort of read Mm. Homage to Catalonia with that uh, awareness and understanding. I don't know if that's the intended outcome. I don't think Anna Funder would be against that as an outcome. She does say how much she loves his books. I don't think she's saying you shouldn't read George Orwell. I think she's just saying this is a reappraisal. That's all. Okay. Really interesting. Okay, really interesting. Well, it's Wifedom by Anna Funder. Now, John, before I ask you the question, let's point out that we ourselves are two um, weird middle-aged men propped up by a female editor on the backlist. <laughs> so, uh, so... Yeah. Fortunately, no, no, let, let, no, no, let no listener be it's a, it's in a professional any way clear about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Imagine being the first person to ever send a payment over the internet. New things can be scary, and crypto is no different. It's new, but like the internet, it's also revolutionary. Making your first crypto trade feels easy with 24-7 support when you need it. Go to Kraken.com and see what crypto can be. 
Not investment advice. Crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to U.S. and U.S. territory customers by Payward Ventures, Inc. PVI DBA Kraken. Visit PVI's disclosures at kraken.com slash legal slash disclosures. So, uh, Nikki, would Nikki please ask John the magic question that will unlock. John, please do tell us what you've been reading. Um, well, I'm going to talk about Cuddy by Benjamin Myers, which is a book I read uh, at Christmas. Uh, over the Christmas break and when we were on um, sabbatical as we call it on pause and I love Ben's work he's been a guest on the show um, and it's about many things but it's inspired by the, the, the history of St Cuthbert okay? St Cuthbert patron saint of the northeast the book is called Cuddy which is the nickname for, for Cuthbert it's a novel right it's a it's a novel isn't it John yeah it's a novel um, in four parts uh, that stretch, stretches from the uh, 10th century when St. Cuthbert died right to the early 21st century to kind of more or less uh, last year, as it were, 2019. So there are four bits to it. There's an introduction, which is in the voice of St. Cuthbert himself, rather beautiful. And there's an interlude in the moment, in the, which is in the form of a, of a drama uh, about um, soldiers uh, who have been injured in the Civil War in 1650, um, who are billeted, awaiting execution. First section is set in, in the, the 300 years after St. Cuthbert died. His body was carried around by a set of, they were known as the Halloera folk, the, uh, uh, the kind of holy wandering folk. And they were so inspired by the legend of Cuthbert had been famous for his piety. He had been uh, a bishop in Lindisfarne. He'd given that up and he ended up, at the end of his life, he ended up living on the Farne Islands, um, having his feet warmed by the breath of otters, eating raw onions. That sounds fun. <laughs> as a mystic and a hermit. And uh, when he died, they carried his body around because they, 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 they were given a vision that they, that they would find a place that they would be able to put up a church. And after about 300 years, they found a bend in the River Weir, and they, that's where they started to build Durham Cathedral, which is my favourite building in the entire world. Amazing. Um, but that is still stands there today. Cuthbert is still buried there. Mm. The great historian Bede is buried there. So the book, as I say, starts with the, the, the Hallower folk wandering, and there's a, there's a, a character who has the vision that leads them to the spot on the weir. Uh, and then the second bit is uh, Middle Ages, the masons building, the, building and, and expanding the cathedral. Uh, the third section is almost like an M.R. James story, uh, kind Ooh. of a beat the Next week's uh, show. 19th century, uh, the, uh, the opening of Cuthbert's tomb, which is based on historical fact, but set up as a sort of a ghost story. He is haunted by uh, the, 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 the academic who, who decides to lead the... Um, the, uh, the, the, the opening of the tomb is haunted. Um, and then the final section is, is a young uh, kind of man working in Durham, working on a zero hours contracts, who gets a job lifting and carrying in the cathedral. And again, he's kind of, his life is transformed by his connection with. The way to think about it, what would I compare it to? I would, I would put it on the same shelf as Alverton. Oh, oh. Alverton by Adam Thorpe. That's a wonderful novel. One of our episodes. One of our episodes yeah. in the Batlist. I would also say it's a great northern because it, 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 it uses different forms of, of writing. It uses diary, it uses drama, it uses monologue, it uses poetry to tell the story. 
I approached it with, with trepidation because I wanted it to be a great northern epic. I wanted it to be the northern Olverton, and I think I think Ben has pulled it off. I think it's it's an absolutely exquisite novel. The last section, which is about this young zero-hour worker whose mum's whose mum's seriously ill, is is I'm going to read a very short section from that. It's not a historical novel. It's a novel about what faith. I mean, Ben is very open in the book. He says, I'm not a Christian, but it is a book about what faith means in people's lives. Each of the sections all the way through are connected. There's a character who has visions. There's a sort of a a rough brute who who performs acts of violence. So it's a beautifully pulled together uh, work of fiction. The people who enjoyed the, his previous historical novel, which won the Walter Strop Prize, The Gallows Pole, there's, there's plenty of that energy in it. But there is also a kind of a lovely kind of intimacy and, and kindness to the book that was there in The Offing, which has been a, a, a huge bestseller. I, I think he's a really, really extraordinary writer, and I think this is his best book. Before you read from it, can I just say one of the great enjoyable things about doing Backlisted for the last eight years is when people in publicity departments, chop out something we say to use on the paperback jacket and then uh, refer to the blacklisted podcast, (laughs) which has now happened several times. So if you are listening to this in the publicity department at, where is it? Is it published by Bloomsbury? It's published by Bloomsbury. You're listening to this. Here's your line, right? It's backlisted (laughs) and it's if you only read one novel about St Cuthbert this year, (laughs) make it this one. Make it cuddy. Make it cuddy. John, please share a section with us. I will. Listen to this. It's, this is from near the end of the novel. Michael is the Michael Cuthbert uh, is the is the character who is living in modern day Durham, a city I know really well. And he then captures the kind of the textures and science sounds and sense of the city brilliantly. It is late, but Michael is not tired. The city echoes with voices and snatches of song and the scent of aftershave, lager, perfume, and synthetic smoke the sense of the intoxicated and the hopeful. Doorways down to basement bars thump with repetitive sound of beats muted by their subterranean origins. Surly men guard the doors as if each building houses invaluable treasures or persons of huge importance. Their shirts are clean and pressed and strained to contain the valleys of muscles that flex beneath the starched polyester. Their small eyes give nothing away, yet see everything. Their feet are planted on the pavement, each stance a silent statement. Each man is entitled to occupy their space as an ancient oak in a paddock. Michael has an itch inside of him, a rattling sense of unease. So he walks and walks away from the cut and thrust of the drink and drug circuit, across the square and over the bridge, the cathedral leaning hard against the sour milk moon. He passes more pubs, bubbling with music, the smokers gathered outside in roped-off pens. Bearded men rub their hands together and laugh, and women totter and cackle and sing in protest against tomorrow's sober reality, their goosebumps worn like medals. Some sport tans that defy the season, and others offer quick and cutting verbal rebukes to the playful but witless suggestions of passing men, whose hands are pressed as snugly into their pockets. Tonight, the city is alive with potential, alive with the promise of sex and violence. He climbs a hill, away from the hubbub, and sees tombstones. This city's old graveyard comes alive at night too. Here, among death, life blooms in the folded creases of darkness. Sometimes young couples lie on the cold, flat headstones that have fallen from soft soil beds, clinging half-naked to each other as if resisting the gravitational pull, while solitary men periodically shuffle, singing into the shadows with beer bottle or phone in one hand, 
and spraying penis in the other. They shake off at the moon and sometimes they howl too, domesticated creatures suddenly set free into the wild jungle of the weekend. At other times, women go together, squatting precariously on dagger-like heels, hand in manicured hand, and they giggle as steaming trickles find the path of least resistance between the old, uneven flagstones and fill the neat lines of the engraved names, the birth dates and the death dates. Unseen, a well-fed fox skulks by, mean-eyed and cautious, almost glued to the cemetery wall. Tonight, in the far corner, there is a rough sleeper who makes a bed for himself in a sepulchral tomb, carefully sliding the heavy slab aside and climbing down onto a mattress of bone dust, moss and spider webs. The noise of the city fades first to a muted whisper, then an airless hush as he folds himself into this space, as deep and immeasurable as England itself, and then pulls the lid back into place, always careful to leave an inch of skylight overhead so that he does not become a corpse completely. Michael passes on by, as stealthy and covert as the fox. His thighs feel the hill and his muscles carry memories of the many lost days of his adolescence, tramping these same streets alone. And as if cut by the blade of the cold winter air, his lungs taste the metallic blood of the night. He turns and walks slowly back downhill to the bus station. It's a really good book. And ah, that's so good. It's, uh, Thank you. It's Thank uh, you. also the last book my dad finished on his own before he died. So it's, uh, and he loved it. In fact, he, uh, one of the, a couple of months before he died, we had a, a phone conversation and he said to me, I could have been that. And I said, you could have been what, Dad? He said, I could have been like Cuthbert. I said, what? You know, live on an island on your own, have your, your feet warmed by the breath of otters. <laughs> and he said, yes. He said, I, I've, I've always loved the saints, the Northeastern saints. And I, it, was, it was very touching exchange because I think what he was also sort of saying is that there's such a, there's such a, there's such a generosity to the book that, that Ben brings out. I mean, it's... It's a, it's a great thing to, to make history actually have some, some sort of relevance. And the, 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 again, you know, what we were saying earlier in the podcast, it's the language and, the, and, the, and what he doesn't do, which, which makes it work mm. as, as much as what he does do. It's a, how, a lovely How has book. he become, I mean, The Gallows Pole feels to me like one of those books that's a bit of a, am I going to use another terrible C word, cult book? Like how has, how has, has, has cult has content? Cult, yeah, well, just it's a bit cultish. No, but it's one of those books that very cool people say you should have read. And how has he become um, that? How, word of mouth, Nikki. Always I think word of, word of mouth. Mm. Always. They're, good, they're really good books. He's doing something, you know, he's working in that slightly, almost in that slightly folk horror-y history kind of period. What I love about, what I love about Cuddy is that it is, it's, it's, a, it's you know, a thousand years and, a, and, and he takes, you know, like a, a kind of one of a cheese sampler going in, he takes a, 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 a bit of each of those and then makes that into something so that each of the poor bits make, makes more sense when you've read the whole book. It's one of those lovely books you want to go back and read, yeah. start again, because you, yeah. you, it's, it's really carefully made. And, 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 you know, he's a really good, beautiful writer, I think. Well, listen, thank you, John. The three books we've been discussing today are The Sarah Book by Scott McClanahan, Wifedom by Anna Funder, and Cuddy by Benjamin Myers. And they are available to be borrowed from your local library if you are lucky enough to have one, or purchased via our bookshop at bookshop.org in the UK, or via independent bookshops around the world, 
or the internet. <laughs> the internet <laughs> can do this for you as well. Audiobooks too. Sometimes people get um, a bit grumpy with us because they can't find the books uh, we're talking about. Not this time. Uh, some of the old ones, not this time. These are all easily available around the world. We hope, we think. And also, if, if you like this, just to plug Patreon a little bit more, can we do that? We, we talk about new books like this as well as music and films and sometimes theatre and just, you know, lots of other cultural things. Gigs. Gigs, yeah. So it's us three <laughs> chatting about books and culture. And I have to tell you something that Andy particularly uh, and John, are very your music knowledge and taste are always fantastic, always introduce me to new music. And you are, well, thank Nikki, you. And that's one of the great things. It's a pleasure to, to hear the music um, that we talk about as well. So, yeah, come and it's look us up. It's a cultural exchange. It is. <laughs> it is. There's more to world than books, it turns out. There's the full, yes. <laughs> now, uh, also, um, the next episode of Batlisted, people are justifiably excited about because it's the Halloween episode that we've run nearly every year since we started, which means, of course, Andrew Mayo will be returning. The Revenant himself will be with us. <laughs> he walks. He, he walks the earth for one day a year, and it's on Halloween. And we've got another returning guest whose identity will remain secret for now, but she's coming back. And it feels like a big celebratory thing as we approach Batlisted 200. And in the past, our Halloween episodes... Listeners, we've been terribly clever and we've done people like Elizabeth Jane Howard and Edith Wharton. And last year we did Henry James. And that's all well and good. But we decided but. that this time we would we would hit the nail firmly upon its head by yeah. um, covering the, well, the greatest. We'll probably be discussing that. The greatest exponent of the ghost story. Perhaps the most influential writer of ghost stories, yeah. We will be discussing M.R. James's first collection. Uh, we, <laughs> you know, I should have looked this up. We can't. <laughs> What's it actually called? Ghost Stories of an Antiquary. Oh, God. Anyway, it's M.R. James. So um, we, we all are extremely enthused about we are. the discussion that will be coming up. We're recording that quite soon. And that will be with you slightly early if you support the Patreon or otherwise on Halloween itself, the 31st of October. Any other business? I think that is us done. Hey, thanks very much, everybody. Thanks for having me, guys. I've enjoyed, um, you know sitting on the mic this time and uh, I look forward to Halloween. Always a pleasure for us. See you guys next week. See you next time. See you everyone. Mm -hmm.